Um, and this Sunday service will be concluding um, towards the end of our service with partaking in the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And that is a, a symbol, if you will, uh, probably one of the greatest symbols that we can ever see uh, that displays for us the love of God. Um, as many, many passages put it, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so, turn with me if you would. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find John chapter 3, um, verses 16 through 19 there on page 752. It's a 752. But if you want to turn to 751, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can just start off there. We're going to read from the first verse actually to get a bit better sense of the context um, of this passage of scripture. There are a number of chapters um, of scripture, a number of portions of scripture that um, over the ages in church history people have said, you know, this chapter or this portion of scripture is one of the most important um, chapters. Uh, there's kind of a running joke that preachers and teachers will always say their favorite part of the Bible is the one that they're in right now. Um, God's word should be treasured in every part but John chapter 3 is one of those common locations, common portions of God's holy word and I would uh, guess I'd venture to say that the, the most well known verse in all the world for a long time has been John 3.16 so as we continue looking at the attributes of God and We'll see something of God's wisdom in this passage as well and, and His power. Um, but as we continue looking at this attribute of love, where does love come from? Let's read John chapter 3. And I'll, as I said, start by reading verse 1 and go down to just beyond verse 19. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again? How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, yet you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are, teacher, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do, not, do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, 
and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Would you pray with me? Father, we we come before you, the awesome creator and sustainer of everything, the one who ordains the moments that we know as life including our moment of death. We thank you that you have shown yourself not just as the supreme one and only God, but as the one who is a fountain and source of love itself. And you have chosen to show your love to those who do not love you throughout the ages so that we can come to know this love through repentance and faith in your Son who you sent in love to die for us to take the place of us to pay the penalty for our sins that we have and will commit to bear the wrath of God, the very essence of hell itself, so that we no longer have to fear that rightful judgment, but through faith in Christ can have the gift of eternal life instead of the justice eternally that we should be receiving, that we would be loved eternally in Christ. May it be that everyone who hears the sound of my voice, whenever they hear this sermon, would come to be those, that all of us would come to to be those who put our faith in Jesus Christ and continue to learn what it means to to love Him, to love you, and to, to live in light of 
your great love for him and for us. We thank you for your patience and your mercy. We thank you for your moment-by-moment mercies, even up to this point this morning. We thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve and that you continue to walk with us, to commune with us through the person and work of your Holy Spirit. And so now, Holy Spirit, we, we ask you as well that you would cause us to see wonderful things in your word and stir our hearts to understand and know and to love Christ all the more. And to be those who who make him known so that others would come to know and to love Christ. To be in this eternal covenant family of God by his grace. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable for this goal. Are we asking in Jesus' name? Amen. In case you just walked in or just tuned in while I was praying there. We're in John chapter 3, starting in verse 16 for now. Excuse me. And I've entitled this uh, sermon, God's Love in Christ. And I have uh, five points that I want us to think about um, today that come from this passage as well as a couple other passages. The first one is this. I want us to, to look at and think about the Son of God's love. Secondly, the purpose of God's love. Thirdly, the cost of God's love. Fourthly, the people of God's love. And lastly, the strength of God's love or the power of God's love. So let's look once again at John chapter 3 starting in verse 16. The Son of God's love. As I said, this verse is probably known as the most popular or well-known verse in the world for ages now. And we need to be careful how we use language like that. It's one thing to know the words of a verse and to be able to recite or repeat a verse. And to know the meaning of a verse. That can be two entirely different things or it can be a slight distinction. And as is the case with any portion of scripture, we can grow in our knowledge that we already have. We can grow deeper in our understanding or our appreciation of any and every verse and any truth in God's word. It's sometimes thought by, by people that when we read this verse, let me read it again, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's one of those verses that we need to memorize by heart, regardless of what translation. Um, ideally, a translation you can repeat in your own common speech um, would be best, but read and memorize verses like this. Meditate on them when we walk away from our Bibles 
so that we can do what David says, hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against him, that we might keep his way pure. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to God's word? It's thought by many that the, the focus and the, the primary um, person in this verse is actually all of us, that the whole world, the whole human race. But I want to just point out once again that the main character of all Scripture is actually God Himself. And so when we look at verse 16, for example, we see this, for God. Uh, this is in the context uh, that the, the, the Gospel writer John, John the Apostle, this is the same John who wrote uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is the same John who also wrote the book of Revelation. He's known as the Apostle of Love. He speaks quite often of love versus hate, of things like light versus darkness. Love is one of his most common themes. Um, but whether or not this is the same, uh, verse 16 is the continuing of Jesus teaching Nicodemus, or this is um, where John picks up after Jesus and Nicodemus, that account has been closed. It's not certain. But what is important here is the context again. As I mentioned, God is the main character of this verse. But if you go back to verse 15, listen to what Jesus has just finished saying to Nicodemus. In the same way that Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. This was an account that Jesus was using to remind Nicodemus that when the Israelites had gone astray over and over and were in 40 years of discipline. That's a pretty serious discipline. Many of us would ask God just to please spank us, literally, than to spend 40 years in a wilderness. But as a form of discipline, and whether it was understood or is understood or not, as a form of loving, corrective discipline, Deuteronomy 8.3 says to teach that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites had gone astray. And during that time, many of them started grumbling against God once again. Grumbled many times, as do all God's people, right? In every age, we grumble too. But in their grumbling... God, as another form of discipline and judgment, really, against their grumbling, sent serpents, real serpents, real snakes. And the people were being bitten by these snakes. And God told Moses, if you make a bronze serpent and hang it up, put it on a, a, a stick, put it on your staff, and you hold it up, you tell the people, everyone who looks to this bronze serpent this will be the way in which they will be healed. They will be saved from the sting of the serpents. And it happened just as God said. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, in the same way that this bronze serpent was lifted up, 
the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, has to be lifted up so that all who look to Him will have eternal life. And this is a, a kind of a picture Jesus is showing that, that by the, the, the sting of the serpent, the ultimate serpent who is Satan, all of us have been bitten. All of us are infected because of our grumbling against God and our turning away from Him. All of us are dying because of sin. And there's no escape. And there's this one way of salvation. And it's by looking to the Son of Man who came to be lifted up. We, we need to have a clear understanding of the depth of our sin, of the problem, before we talk about what it is we're being saved from. We're being saved from the judgment of God, not just the sting of Satan, but also the means by which God saves us, which is His only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That the two people who are at work in a good and positive way in this verse are God the Father and God the Son. You notice that? There's a person who initiates the work of Christ. It is the Father who sends the Son to show love for the world. And this world is not a world that is looking to Him. It is a world filled with sinners who don't by nature love God. We, we, we don't turn on CNN and, and um, CBN and Fox News and all the rest of them. We don't turn them on and first thing in the morning and first thing during lunchtime and first thing before we go to bed. We don't turn those stations on and see a group of people who are so wonderful and so lovely and speaking wonderful things about the God who made them. If we're realistic about things, we see the opposite of that. We see the effects of this sting, of this serpent. Now you contrast that with the, the God who we've been considering in His attributes. You contrast that with the one who is eternal, who is uncreated, who is pure goodness and pure love. And as uh, Jesus said, I, I mentioned this in John 17, 24, touched on this last week. Listen to these words in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before anything was there was this perfect love between the Father and the Son. So for these words to remain valuable and for us to grow in, in our appreciation of them, we have to start with understanding the pure, unbroken, unbounded love of God the Father for His precious Son. And in the context of a place like the Cayman Islands, which has been blessed with so many Christians for so long and so much of what we could call a Christian heritage, it is very easy to forget 
the context of this verse where, where Nicodemus heard these words from Jesus, you must be born again. It's very easy to forget a biblical truth that we are not by nature children of God. Our sons and daughters and the man and woman in the mirror are not children of God by nature. We must be born again. There's only one who is by nature a child of God, and that is his eternal son. Before he became a child in the the manger by the Virgin Mary giving birth to him, he was a son eternally, uncreated, through whom all things were made, who received love from the Father. And so let's, having thought a little bit about that, the Son of God's love. He's the only one who, by nature, has the right to say, God loves me unconditionally. You ever heard of that phrase? Unconditional love? There's only one person who truly has the unqualified love of the Father. That is Jesus Christ. So let's look at these verses some more. 16 and 17 in the second point. The purpose of God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We start to see the purpose of Him sending the Son. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him, or that the world might be saved through Him. Now this becomes a little bit tricky, but this is also important for us to think about. When we think about the purpose of God's love, it comes back to the whole theme of what is love again. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an idea. Love is the the self-giving loyalty and commitment to the good of another. And this is what we see in this verse, that, that God, His intention is the highest good of others in sending His Son. Now, my wife can tell you, I don't really watch sports. But this week there was a little advert during the Super Bowl. It's part of a movement a lot of Christians are joining in with. It's entitled, I think, something like, He Gets Us. The idea is that Jesus gets us right as we are, right where we are, and accepts us just like that. And that that's supposed to be true love. And so they had people washing the feet of those who represent various lifestyles of sin because Jesus washed people's feet. By the way, as far as we know, we only have one record of him washing feet in the Bible. Could be wrong. But that was in the upper room with his disciples who had sacrificed their livelihoods and followed him for three years. Now they weren't perfect, but they were repentant and following him. And so the highest good of God sending his son was not just to meet people where they are and leave them where they are, but to change them into the character of his 
only son for their good. Jesus didn't preach hate. But the kind of love that he preached and the kind of love that he gave was a love that doesn't just wash you and leave you in the mire, in the mud. It washes you clean of your sinful mud and changes you from the inside out. Yes, he gets us. And praise God, he doesn't just get us, he comes to us and cleans us up, or as the Bible says, he sanctifies us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, comma, that he might sanctify her by the cleansing of washing with the word. See, our salvation includes that. That was the purpose of God's love. That is the purpose of him sending his only son. He would not permit the dishonor of his son's glory to see us stay where we are and continue rejecting his son and still somehow be in some sort of relationship of love with him. We have to be very careful when we see these little ideologies floating around with these catchphrases, things like he gets us. And I'm not trying to pick on that movement or, again, just because the Super Bowl just happened, I'm not trying to talk about that this week. But this is something that's been going on for a long time. Isn't that similar to the voice of the serpent who came to Eve? Oh, yeah, I know God. Did, did he really say this, though? You know, he... Maybe the serpent could have said something like, he, he gets you. You see, what he gets is that you're going to become more like him if you do this thing that his word clearly told you not to do. No. We need to be clear on the purpose of God's love, the highest good of others, to give eternal life and not to condemn but to save through him. But notice there, in the beginning of verse 17, it says, He did not send him into the world to condemn the world. But do you know why he had to come to save us? Do you know why he didn't come to condemn? Well, let's look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, the reality is that ever since Adam and Eve walked into sin and willfully turned from listening obediently to the Word of God and chose to obey the Word of the serpent, to believe the lies of Satan, by nature now, we, to use this word, this language, we stand condemned. And so if we choose to reject this only son that God sent, not only are we not born again, but our condemnation is further secured, is, 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 is further just and justified. Imagine if you were willing to sacrifice one of your children for the good of another person. I don't like to use these analogies too often. 
we have to be careful with them. But just imagine if you were, and the person's response was, okay, thanks. I'm kind of disinterested. I'll give you a thumbs up. I'll think about your child that you sacrificed once in a while. It was a pretty nice gesture. Imagine if that was the kind of attitude you would be enraged. You would be enraged that this person did not commit themselves to loving you, to showing you gratitude for the rest of their life. Because you took something that is more dear to you than anything else that exists. In this case, there's no quantifiable way to, to measure the worth of Christ as the eternal Son of God, but this is who the Father sent to bear our sins so that we don't remain condemned. And the purpose of this love was to give us eternal life. That's not just a, a length of days. When the Bible uses this phrase, eternal life, it's speaking both about an immeasurable time, but it's speaking about a quality, not just a quantity, but a quality of life that you begin to feel even now. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught by Jesus not just to repeat those words, but to think in our prayer life about asking the Father for things that will cause His will to be done and our lives to begin to experience a taste of heaven on earth even now so that we can be witnesses of that reality to others who would hopefully then come to Jesus themselves. That's the reality of eternal life. We, we don't... And in the beauty of the, the, the sal salvation that God offers in His Son is this. We don't have to wait till the end of our life to start to feel this connection, this communion, this covenant union with God through Christ and to know with confidence that we are right with Him. Now there are certain religions and certain so-called churches that teach that. That teach that you can't have assurance. That you can't have an eternal security in Christ. And that would be a horrible way for you to live. I just want you to hear this. We'll get more into this in the last point. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ, in light of our sin, became one of us and lived a life of sinless perfection, perfect obedience, perfect submission to the Father's will, according to His Word, according to His laws. Jesus kept it in our place. He says, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. And He did that. And then He went to Calvary, knowing, sometimes we want to know what's happening in the future. If we could fully know what's going to happen in our future, we might just disintegrate. We wouldn't be able to handle it. But Jesus know, knows fully what's going to happen to him on that cross. And he goes to the cross prepared to take the Father's justice in our place. And takes our sin upon himself and is treated as if 
He committed all your sins. All of them and all my sins. And all the sins of whosoever believes. Nobody more and nobody less. And we'll come to that in a moment too. And having taken the penalty of all who will trust in Him on that old rugged cross, He says it is finished. Because He has been treated in three hours. He took the full eternal weight of hell for every believer throughout the ages. He took that in three hours. The forsakenness God and he says it's finished and he is buried and to prove that the father accepted this as the final and all sufficient sacrifice he raises him three days later from the grave bodily and spiritually he is risen to prove that he was true that all he came to do had been accomplished and therefore will be accomplished. So when we call people to Christ, we're calling them to put their faith in the promise of the gospel that the moment you believe in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid in full. That is good news. <laughs> that is great news. And it cannot be undone. For any true Christian to lose their salvation would be a statement of God Himself to say His Son's work is insufficient. Would He ever dishonor His name like that? Never. He is committed to our highest good. Paul says with confidence, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We can rest in this news, church. We can live in the light of this truth. But it's for those who believe. You must repent and believe this gospel. And it comes to us as a command, not just as a suggestion. And I keep stressing this. This is a... Actually, I've started talking about the third point, the cost of God's love. So let me just go to the fourth point. Salvation is, is not just a possibility, it is an actuality. But who are the recipients of God's love? It says God so loved the world. Some people will say, well, the world. Well, no, you see, look again. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Meaning unbelievers are those who remain or stand condemned and continue in their perishing and then perish eternally if they do not turn to Christ before their last moment in this world or before He comes back at an unknown time. So fourthly, who are the people of God's love? Remember, there is a unique love which God has for His Son which He does not share with any of us. There's a special love that belongs to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which is not worthy of any of us expecting to be participants in, because we are not worthy of it. But by grace, He brings us into this love union. 
but notice who it is that are made up of this covenant people, this, this group of people who, who make up those people of God's love. It is believers. If you jump down to the end of verse 30, uh, the end of chapter 3, verse 35 and 36, you'll see these words. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you notice the, the present continuous there? Has. Not will have at some point, but has now. Whoever believes has. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son, or some translations say, whoever does not obey the Son. And that begins with repent and believe the gospel. Again, that's not a, that's not a suggestion. That is a command. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, however it's said, it could be said the way I just said it, repent and believe the gospel. Or it could be said, repent and believe the gospel. Flee from the wrath to come. However you say it, the gospel comes to us as a command. But notice again, whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Remains. That's another present continuous word. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is filled with promises. Promises. Great promises. Promises of God's love, but also promises for those who do not believe of rightful justice. And when we come to the subject of hell, for example, it is filled with all sorts of questions. But one thing we have to do as believers is recognize, first of all, we are not commanded to have all the answers. Second, we are not expected to ever come to a point where we can answer all the questions that come to us, even if we could do a better job sometimes. We should be okay with the fact that our friends at school, our, friend, our, our co-workers, family members, will sometimes be unhappy with our answers. But when it comes to the subject of God, we should never be comfortable with the language of fairness. Some people say, I don't like this idea of God that you Christians put forward, that He's eternal, that He holds all things in the balance, and that Christ is the only way of salvation, and that those who don't believe are eternally judged, condemned. That's not fair. The gospel is filled with not fairness, but righteousness. Remember, we looked at that attribute last week. Righteousness demands that those who are under the decree of God meet the standards of God. And since none of us do, the only righteous thing for Him to do would be to condemn all of us. And so the reality is fairness doesn't apply to God. He's outside of that idea. He's not unfair, to use it rightly. But here's the deal. God offers grace to some. We don't know through the preaching and sharing of the gospel who is going to believe, and that is not on our shoulders either, thankfully. We should want everyone to hear and believe the truth about Christ. 
everyone we can share with. But the reality is God has a unique people. And they are called the church. They are called believers. They are called those who are in Christ. In fact, that is the, the key point that I want to make in this sermon. As a, as a people who define yourself as Christian, as part of the church, we are those who are in Christ. The main phrase that the, the New Testament uses to define Christians is this two-word title, in Christ. Paul writes all his letters, and, and Peter too, in a very similar way. It says, to those who are in Ephesus, who are in Christ. So we must not define ourselves as those who are primarily in Cayman or in America or in England or in Europe or in Asia or somewhere else in the world. It's okay to recognize that we do live in these contexts. But the moment we move from one context, from one jurisdiction, from one governmental situation to another, our identity doesn't change. It remains the same. It is those who are in Christ. And therefore, to understand who we are and to understand what we are called to, we have to understand this reality of being in Christ. These are the people of God's special love. I think it's fine to say that in one sense, God loves all of His creation. But He doesn't have the same kind of love for worms that are tilling the soil right now as he does for you even just from the standpoint that you're made in his image he set a special uh, unique seal on mankind by taking us from the dirt maybe sometimes we got to remember where we come from too we're from dirt right you hear these things at funerals from dust you came and to dust you return but we're not just from the dirt. We are made in the image of God, the likeness of God, and no other part of creation shares in that. No other part, no creature. So God's love for creation in general must not be mixed up with His love for the church. For, for humans... And his general love for humanity, in a similar way, going from lower to higher, his general love for humanity must not be confused with his love for the church. Again, what does Ephesians 5 say? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Notice it doesn't say husband. Husbands, love wives as Christ loves the church. No, it's, it, it definitely doesn't say that. It says, love your own wife. Love one woman in a unique way that you are not to love any other woman ever till death do you part. And boy, do we need a dose of that today. So many men are failing to recognize the beauty and the power of this kind of love. And if they're in our midst, in love, if we're failing to do this, we need to be ready for accountability. We need to be rebuked in love. We need to be helped and encouraged to love 
our wives in a way that we think of no other woman. But that's what he's saying Christ's love for the church is. Those who are in Christ, who are believers. Where this can sometimes be confusing, if you just read Ephesians um, chapter 5, and if you don't think about this, and if you read John chapter 3, you see the words there again. God so loved the world. The word world is actually used, I think it's in about 10 different ways. 10, almost 10 different ways, or 8 or 10 different ways in the Gospel of John. In fact, in all John's writings, world. Now, think about this. God so loved the world. I just want to think about three ways that it's used. World can be used to describe all of creation, so planet Earth. Right? So, let's just imagine that that's how this was. This is not the way it's used here, but just think about this for a second. God so loved planet Earth that he gave his, no, you see, it doesn't make sense to keep going. That he gave his one and only son. That planet Earth would be saved. No. We know that that is incorrect. That's not the way John, by the Spirit's inspiration, is speaking here. But what about the second of these three ways I want us to consider? The world system. Right? In First John, John says, actually, do not love the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world. First John, do not love the world. Well, that's speaking about the world system, the evil nature of men and our scheming. Men who are not regarding God and have no regard for Christ and are not seeking to love Him. We're not to love the patterns of this world, the ideas of this world that don't take into consideration God and His truth. We're actually commanded, church, to not love that. We're actually, we're actually commanded to hate that. So definitely he's not saying to love that here. It's still difficult because the third way I'm going to share, which is the, actually what he's using here, God so loved the world, speaking of humanity in a general sense, is the way that this verse is talking about the world. See, John understands the context he's in that for so many ages it has only been the nation of Israel that have been God's unique people. The, the people who God has uniquely set apart and set His love on. And so John is saying that this Son of Man who came to be lifted up that whoever believes will have eternal life. He didn't just come for people within Israel. You see, that's why the word whosoever is repeated a few times in this chapter. Because he's trying to show that the extent of God's love goes to the ends of the earth for those who believe. And that the sacrifice that his son came to make, which did not make salvation possible, but actual, belongs to a people, namely those who believe. And so when we think about the people of God's love, we're talking about those who believe. Throughout the world, all the ethnicities, 
The same way that Jesus commands His church to go and make disciples. Go throughout the world and make disciples of all nations. Pentata ethne. In Revelation, we see that every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around the throne of God, singing, worthy is the Lamb. And, and see, that's the end goal of this reality too. Remember who God loves above, above all else, His one and only Son. And so in bringing us into this love and forgiving our sins and, and giving us His righteousness in place of our sin and giving us eternal life, we praise Him for all eternity. And it's only God who can give of Himself for His own glory and not be an idolater. That's just God being God. That's why Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. We're so quickly able as sinners, even saved sinners, we're so quickly able to move from doing good deeds to wanting a little pat on the back for those good deeds. But God is worthy of praise eternal for the work of Christ. And it's the people of God's love who are called the church now, who are making up this kingdom of God eternal that are the focus of the sending of His Son. Which brings me to the final point. The strength of God's love. As I mentioned already, Jesus has made it clear in passages like John 6 where He calls Himself the bread of life and, and John 10 where He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. He says things like this, It is the will of My Father that He would lose none of all that He has given Me, but raise them up on the last day. God's love is from everlasting to everlasting for His people. And what a powerful, strong love that is. The end of Romans chapter 8, which we looked at a little bit last week, we are reminded of these words. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. And so with that thought, let us remember church, God's love in Christ. And let us tell those who have yet to, to hear of God's love in Christ. If you're, if you're here today, if you're listening on the radio later or tuning in on Facebook and you have not yet become a Christian, if you have not yet received this Christ, well, until the moment you do, you should actually feel a sense of fear because God's wrath rightfully remains on those who reject His Son. But to whosoever believes in Him, He gives them everlasting love, eternal life. So may this be the day when we are to see or to hear of someone who has believed in Him. And for those who came as believers, may this be another day for us to be reminded of God's special love for us in Christ. Amen. Father, we thank You again for this time and we ask that You would help us now as we prepare our hearts and minds to take the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, which symbolizes this great love that You are willing to sacrifice Your one and only Son, not because we deserve it, 
but because you are love. Help us now to continue worshiping you in spirit and in truth because of who you are and because of what you have done in Christ. And may your name be honored through what has been said and through what we do with the rest of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the elders to the front at this time. Supper at this time. Uh, once a month we do this together, and this is a remembrance a meal where we, um, we call it Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, and we partake in this as believers. Um, this is a representation, a symbol of people who have come to repent of their sins and, and believe in the life and the death of Christ and His resurrection. And so we mark ourselves out just like how we meet on Sunday mornings, um, which is the day of the week that he rose. We're trying to mark ourselves out in obedience to the person and the work of Christ. So if you're here with us today, whether you're visiting from another church or um, you're, you're here visiting with us for any reason, on vacation or whatever, if you are a believer in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, for the salvation of yourselves, your soul. Um, this is a, a meal of remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we are brothers and sisters who come together to partake of this. If you if you are not yet a believer, um, I pray that you just let the elements pass by. There's no actual power in the substance itself, but the one that it points us to, we have a, a moment here where we can, by faith, be enriched by enjoying the, the person and the work of Christ together by faith. But if you if you are not a believer, just let the elements pass you by and think about the fact that that is also symbolizing that the salvation of Christ, forgiveness, eternal life, these things symbolically pass you by. And, and please come speak to me or or someone else after the service because we would want nothing more than you you change your mind you repent of that mindset and you turn to Christ so that you can receive this gift of eternal life by faith in him and that the next time we partake in this you do so with us or with another gospel believing church wherever you are going to if you are a Christian who does believe but you know that you're also um holding on to something secretly, you're in a pattern of sin that you're not willing to repent of. The scriptures also tell us to make sure that we examine ourselves to take of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Um, I mentioned that God disciplines his people. There's some evidences of that in the beginning of the New Covenant where people do receive discipline at times for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So if you are walking in some sort of unforgiveness or bitterness that you're not willing to turn from yet or you need to work out, it's okay to let the elements pass you by this time as well. 
that would be the wise thing to do. Uh, but let us partake, we'll pass out all the elements and take part in this together as we rejoice in Christ, our Savior.